Courtney Bowman thought he was destined for a career in physics until he took a philosophy class, which triggered a deep skepticism of the hardness of the hard sciences and the ability of science alone to solve technology's ills. Bowman decided to pursue his quest for a philosophical underpinning for his life and work, which unexpectedly gave him the tools to address some of the most challenging and salient technology questions of the day. A lot of what happens in Silicon Valley, a lot of what, what happens in the technology sector, oftentimes um, is subject to this, this sort of solutionist mind, mindset that technology can solve all of the world's problems. But in fact, most of the world's problems uh, exist and inhere in spaces that are so complex um, that if you focus on just a technological approach to them, you're losing out on the richness of the challenge uh, and oftentimes failing to, to address the underlying issues in a, in a meaningful way or in a complete way. Hello everyone, I'm Chitra Raghavan and this is When It Mattered. This episode is brought to you by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. I'm joined now by Courtney Bowman, a former colleague and director of privacy and civil liberties engineering at Palantir Technologies. Bowman's work addresses complex issues at the intersection of policy, law, technology, ethics, and social norms. As the lead for Palantir's in-house privacy and civil liberties team, Bowman works extensively with international, federal, state, and local government and commercial and philanthropic partners and privacy advocates to develop responsible data governance practices in the implementation of Palantir software platforms. Bowman is currently working closely with the U.S. government and governments around the world to address the issues around the collection and analysis of massive amounts of data from the COVID-19 pandemic. Courtney, welcome to the podcast. Chitra, thank you so much. It's an honor to be invited to your podcast, um, and I really appreciate it. So what were you doing in life when you first began to understand the need for philosophy as an underpinning for your life and work? Yeah, I, so it, it's an interesting question that I've been reflecting on quite a bit lately, um, as now I've, I've been um, sheltering in place where I grew up in New Mexico, a little bit outside of Albuquerque. And one of the reflections and recollections I had was as a high school student and a college student where I had um, the, the opportunity and the privilege to be able to intern in a physics laboratory at Sandia National Labs. Um, and so in that, those early days, I was really quite passionate about physics and pursuing a career in physics um, and was really trending in that direction when I um, went to, to university. Uh, but my, my initial thinking was really directed at how can I learn from the hard sciences, um, physics in particular, and what might be the, the course and trajectory for a career moving in that direction. Um, but uh, things changed as I, as I started to take more courses and explore um, more of the humanities as an undergraduate at Stanford. So was there a particular issue or a problem that you were trying to solve uh, via physics when you kind of had this existential change of thinking? Yeah, so I was, I, at the time, I was taking kind of core coursework in um, physics as an undergraduate. And uh, during my summers, I would come back to New Mexico and was, was doing internships at the labs, mostly focused on optical physics. But I, when I started to take classes in philosophy, one of the things that I discovered is that the, the hard sciences prepare you for answering a certain set of questions and give you a, a certain set of tools 
for dealing with problems in the world. Um, but they don't always address the richness of the things that we encounter. And as I started to take more philosophy courses and became interested in uh, what I guess would now be considered a more obscure aspect of 20th century um, philosophy, uh, one of the realizations I had was that there's a richness to understanding and exploring the world that you don't necessarily get from the toolkit that's provided by the hard sciences and in physics in particular. So what did you do then? Did you break away from physics? And, and, and how were your teachers and mentors responding to your change of heart? I, so I had a couple of kind of distinct conversations. Um, I think this was one summer when I came back to New Mexico and was working in the, in the lab, in the national labs, um, uh, for my internship, I remember speaking with my mentor and advisor and started to articulate that I was being pulled in different directions and had begun taking philosophy courses and wasn't as convinced as I had been in previous years that, that physics was the path forward for me. And, and I remember one very distinct conversation with my advisor where I, I started to articulate this alternative or branching path. And she sort of reacted quite abruptly and was, was concerned and uh, maybe even a little bit disappointed and began to discourage me from, um, from getting distracted from, from physics and, and engineering. Um, and I, in that moment, really thought to myself, um, despite the guidance that I was getting from her and despite conversations I was having with my, my family at the time, who all sort of saw philosophy as kind of a dead end or something that, that hermits or academics pursue, um, I had this kind of inner gnawing, this intuition that this was something that was really important that I needed to pursue. Uh, and I did. And I, you know, I, I kind of hedged my bets at the time and pursued both courses of study. Um, so I ended up getting uh, degrees in both in both physics and philosophy. Um, but but philosophy from that point on became kind of the stronger passion for me and one of the driving thrusts for the things that I wanted to focus on, not just in my personal life, but see if I could figure out ways of applying that knowledge to the things that I was doing professionally. So what did you do next? And, and how did you start to move your career forward with kind of this dual interest? So after I graduated, I ended up um, spending some time abroad, um, mostly in Germany. Uh, and at that point, I was trending in the direction of, of philosophy graduate work. And one of the things that you do if you're preparing for philosophy uh, graduate studies is you make sure that you have the, both the academic grounding, but also language grounding um, in a core language that's associated with philosophical study. So usually it's it's German, French, uh, Ital uh, um, uh, Latin, or uh, or Greek. Um, and my focus and interest being in this uh, the school of 20th century German uh, philosophy dictated that that German was the course of study that I need to pursue. So I ended up living in, in Berlin for a while, um, taking uh, language courses, um, getting more proficient in German language. Um, and uh, that continued for a while as I, was, as I was thinking about applications for graduate study. Um, but another interesting thing happened at that point, I, I started to become a little bit disenchanted with the prospect of becoming a quote unquote professional philosopher or going into academic study, in part because of conversations that I had with many friends who, who were in that course of study, but also realizing that the, the richness of descriptions of the world that I was looking for um, and that I found insufficient in physics 
also kind of nagged at me um, in the views that I was getting on the humanity side and the philosophy course of study that I was pursuing. So I was kind of at a bit of a crossroads um, and ended up coming back to the States um, a bit shiftless at the time uh, and on a lark uh, interviewed and took a job in Silicon Valley and started working at Google. This was roughly back in 2004, 2005. And 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 were you able to kind of bring these things together, uh, starting because you were now working on some of these uh, technology issues and problems at Google? A little bit. Um, so at the time, I was mostly in a position where, thankfully, I had um, some some physics and mathematics background, and was able to apply that to um, quantitative analytics, uh, which got me really involved in understanding some of the complex issues of data analysis, and and I developed a breadth of or depth of knowledge in that space and in application to those areas of of technology, um, but was you know a little bit. Uh, disinterested in the specific course of work that I was doing. So I was in that role for a few years, but um, by happenstance, I, I also became familiar with this other company um, several years later, um, Palantir Technologies, which is where I am now, um, where I was presented with an opportunity to work on something that more squarely seemed to at least point in the direction of bringing together these different threads of background and interest um, that had historically informed my, my view of the world. Now, you are finding in through all of your exploration that, particularly in the area of artificial intelligence, for instance, that your initial hypothesis that science and physics and engineering can't solve some of these hard issues that you're trying to, people are trying to solve through artificial intelligence was actually, in fact, true. What were you seeing? Where was that gap that you were seeing? This is one of the interesting things where I started to realize that these rather arcane areas of study that I had focused on, this school of German philosophy from the early 20th century called phenomenology that attempted to articulate a methodology and approach to an alternative view of, of the world that isn't focused or grounded in what we think of as a subject-object distinction, but looks at a more holistic picture of our experiences and tries to describe those things in terms of um, the embodied life that we live, um, the the situation uh, or the situational elements of what constitutes our experiences, all of these things that that kind of in the abstract academic sense seem a little bit removed from the world, started to come into clear relief to me as I as I began to think about um, the the promises and failures of of certain types of technology and specifically questions around things like artificial intelligence. And the, the conviction in the, the space of artificial intelligence has historically been that you can come up with a theory of the mind and then build a technology that models that theory and somehow you have intelligence. Um, and because of a lot of these musings and readings and, um, and discussions that I had had over the years uh, in the course of my, my philosophical work, I, I began to question those premises and, and recognize that uh, what we actually find from the philosophical inquiries and philosophical discussions is a clear sense of what the limits are of technology. And this was actually quite an insightful moment for me to, to realize that a lot of what happens in Silicon Valley, a lot of what, what happens in the technology sector oftentimes um, is subject to this, this sort of solutionist mind, mindset that technology can solve all of the world's problems, but in fact, 
most of the world's problems uh, exist and inhere in spaces that are so complex um, that if you focus on just a technological approach to them, you're losing out on the richness of the challenge uh, and oftentimes failing to, to address the underlying issues in a, in a meaningful way or in a complete way. And that was something that really um, has followed me throughout all of the, the uh, different components of the work that I'm currently engaged in, not just in artificial intelligence, but more generally recognizing that the challenges that we're dealing with today with respect to applying complex data science, um, uh, technology, information systems are much deeper than the data or the data science themselves. For those, for those problems and challenges to attach to the real world, they also have to address the complexities of the real world. And that means understanding the sociology, the cultural aspects, the philosophical, ethical aspects, all those things have to be brought together into a, a richer approach and appeal to, to those types of problems. And the work that you're doing at Palantir now, of course, also has to do with data analytics, you know, and what with the, the data that, what meaning you can derive from data, but also because there's so much data that's being generated and analyzed, it raises a lot of interesting, complex questions of how to protect people's privacy and, and civil liberties. And, and you're part of a pretty unique team at Palantir that's uh, trying to find some of the solutions to these pretty thorny questions. Talk about this team that you are leading and, and some of the sort of challenges that you're facing in general before we, we talk about the pandemic, which has brought everything to relief. Yeah, so when I, when I joined Palantir in 2010, I came on board with uh, another colleague uh, with whom I, I was asked to start to construct this idea of what we call privacy engineering or privacy and civil liberties engineering team. And the, the founding concept here was a recognition of the complexity of applying information science and technologies to these extraordinarily nuanced complex challenges in the world. When we looked around to see what the existing models were for approaching questions, normative questions like what are the privacy obligations that uh, that one has in applying technology um, to address things like counterterrorism um, or uh, or economic um, supply chain questions, um, all of these these sorts of issues raise um, uh, concerns about whether. Oh, so, sorry, just going back to when you apply those questions and look at existing models for um, for treating those challenges, oftentimes the the toolkit that's available are um, basic legal uh, uh, legal um, approaches. Uh, and so, when we were founding this team, we what we observed was that most of how Silicon Valley and other industries were tackling questions of privacy was on a purely legalistic dimension. Um, the the challenge with that is that technology is constantly straining the boundaries of what exists in the law and what our normative uh, conceptions are for, for dealing with those technologies. Um, so another way of putting that is that um, the law is always lagging what technology is doing. And uh, in order to, to start to uh, get ahead of that problem, you have to constantly look around corners and try to anticipate how the norms of applied technology are going to play out and think of that, I think of the law as kind of the floor and the ethical considerations and normative considerations as the thing that you want to build against. So what I started to work on um, with colleagues at Palantir was building out this concept of privacy engineering 
as a uh, pursuit that's multidisciplinary that has to incorporate not just the pure engineering considerations, but also the ethics, the humanities, the, the legal considerations, the cultural, sociological, even psychological dimensions of applied technology, um, and put those things in the context of the uses of the technology in the world. Uh, and, and to do that, and if you do that, you start to get to better solutions that are more closely grounded in the realities as opposed to grafting technology onto a problem space where the technology may not actually make sense. Are there any examples, very general examples, of how you can kind of explain that complexity? Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's many examples of of where that that plays out. Um, so a lot of what we're what we're doing is helping to situate the the idea of complex institutions like, um, uh, for example. Commercial entities that have been built up over the years, so let's say like a bank or a financial or some other financial institution, they've been built up over the years of through mergers and acquisitions. Um, and what that means in practice is that the data foundations that they're drawing upon come from all different sorts of, of systems. And those systems don't necessarily cleanly talk to each other. But if you're at in a leadership level within an organization like that, within a financial institution, and you're trying to make comprehensive decisions about where to direct the business, you need a broader view of the data that's available. You need to understand the landscape of all the contractual obligations that you have and um, the, the consumers or, or businesses that you're working with. Um, uh, and you need to put those, those considerations into a, a broader context of what's happening um, in the economy uh, throughout the world. And so to, to, to merge all that information together, um, and to deal with information sources that are maybe highly regulated because you're in the financial sector and because that information is personally identifiable, you need to understand what the consumer expectations are for the use of that information, what the privacy obligations are, um, where the law and regulation is likely to trend so that if you're interested in building new financial products um, or applying new applications for data science, you can anticipate what uh, the consumer requirements are going to be, not just under the law, but also in accordance with the expectations that people have when they sign up and form a relationship of trust with a powerful institution like that. Yeah, I think the issue of trust is so important. And even technology companies like Palantir, as you know, have become incredibly controversial, especially in sort of some of the far left advocacy groups, because of the power of these platforms, you know, whether it's Palantir or Facebook or Google, there's a tremendous power that is, as you said, you know, because the law is always lagging behind. And it's how do you protect people's privacy and civil liberties? And even Palantir that has a group like this that's dedicated to understanding this raises suspicion and trust among people how do you, a lack of trust among people, how, does, how do technology companies deal with this? Uh, how can you cope with the growing complexity of technology and the growing distrust of the public? It's, a, I think, a great question, Chitra, because it's, it's one of the founding um, concepts of, of Palantir. And um, for people who recognize the reference, um, Palantir comes from the Lord of the Rings, um, Tolkien's uh, fantasy uh, novels. And the, the concept of Palantir is sort of seeing stone. And it's analogous to a piece of technology. And this is by intent. A technology that may be powerful that allows you um, 
to see great distances or understand uh, a lot of information um, is not ethically neutral. Um, it, it implies a sense of moral responsibility to the users. And that, that was kind of the origin of this, this naming convention for, for the company, that we as a company wanted to recognize that in building powerful technology, we also have responsibilities to help ensure that that technology is constructed and applied um, responsibly. So to, to answer your question, I think that one of the ways that you start to address these questions of, of trust is um, starting from the premise that the technology is not just a neutral application, that it needs to attach to the complex situations uh, that you're trying to address in the world, um, inclusive of not just the mission objectives, but also the, the core concerns around privacy and civil liberties. And one of the ways that we've taken, or one of the approaches that we've taken to addressing that is, is building out um, a, a set of um, critical institutional practices that are grounded in work that I and my team do around privacy engineering, um, not just in the sense of, of building new privacy protective capabilities in our software platforms, but treating those capabilities as things that relate to organizational processes that have to tie into business practices, that have to um, uh, build in a working fluency of new data protection regulations in all of the landscapes and sectors in which we operate. And now you have COVID-19 and it seems that everything that you have been working towards in terms of understanding through both a philosophical and engineering lens has kind of brought you to this moment in the world where a pandemic has essentially upended all the norms and rules of all the games that you know we are engaged in. How, how do you um, sort of deal with some of these fundamental privacy and civil liberties challenges of tracking this pandemic? What are sort of some of the broad issues that you're confronting? Uh, and, and then we can sort of break it down further. Yeah, so I, there's a lot that's happening right now. And as a starting point, I would, I would say, yes, there, there are particularly exigent circumstances that are driving concerns, and they're very real and legitimate concerns that need to be addressed. But in many ways, um, those of us in the technology sector and the world at large, in many respects, are, are well-equipped to, to answer the challenge, in part because we've dealt with similar exigent circumstances in the past, but also because we have kind of strong playbooks for understanding why the needs of the moment um, should be treated appropriately. They shouldn't be um, accepted as the absolute new norms. Um, we should think about limits on the types of interventions that we're gonna uh, apply now um, and make sure that we're building in checks and balances over time. Um, to protect against uh, invasions or, or concerns around um, surveillance um, or, or other concerns from the privacy and civil liberties in the civil society communities. Um, but to speak specifically about the, the, the types of challenges that are being raised right now, um, uh, I should say that uh, you know, we as a company at Palantir are focused on the data integration side of the problem. So we work with public health and other institutions that have access to certain types of data and we, we work with them to um, to process that information in responsible ways. Um, we're not involved on the data collection side, um, but as we, we help support this work in terms of integrating information sources um, from the, the various applications that the public health sector is involved in, uh, we're looking at questions around things like um, mobility tracking. So 
the, the devices that we carry with us, the applications that we use on our phones, the services that we, um, that we rely on, um, platforms like Google and Facebook and Apple, they're all kind of constantly generating different forms of um, telemetry or geolocational data. And that data um, can be used for varying purposes for ad targeting, um, but also can be applied in aggregate to understand how people are moving. Um, so if you, for example, as a public health agency wanted to understand um, if the public, if the, uh, the stay-at-home order that you've established for your region um, is effective um, and is resulting in people in aggregate staying at home more often or traveling less, you might be able to use that data um, to, uh, to answer those sorts of questions. That's, that's one class of problems, um, but it also raises concerns from the privacy community in that um, even though you've aggregated the data, there may be a prospect of re-identifying that data um, if it hasn't been aggregated and de-identified or anonymized in a responsible way. Um, the, the concerns would be that that data could then be used to uh, or repurposed at a later point to try and infer how people have moved, um, whether they've, they've moved to sensitive locations or they've carried out activities that might be in contravention of, of the law or other norms. Um, those applications might be outside of the scope of the original intent, but they raise real concerns. Um, another area of, of interest um, from the privacy community in the use of technology in, in this current uh, crisis is um, with what's called immunity passports. And this is a concept of, um, let's assume that we have broad scale testing um, to understand whether people are infected. Um, and then you can take that information of um, whether uh, you've, you've been recently tested or in the event, the eventuality of a vaccine, um, whether you've been vaccinated, um, preserve that status on your phone and use that as a passport for entry into your workplace, um, into stores, and as other parts of the economy start to open up into, into other, um, uh, other private sector um, and public sector spaces. Um, so there are real concerns with that idea because then you, you run into issues of, well, are people going to be incentivized to cheat the system? Um, are there other types of data that are being generated through the application that tracks your immunity passport um, that could be used to further identify where you're going and what you're doing. Uh, and that carries some kind of disconcerting overtones for, for many people. It, it, it sort of falls into that, um, that kind of quasi-fascist paper-please paradigm that I think raises the hackles on, on some people's necks. Um, and then there's kind of a third tranche of technology application that I think a lot of people are talking about, you see in the news, of digital contact tracing, exposure notification systems. And this gets to the idea of using your mobile devices that many of us carry around all the time as a proxy for understanding whether if we've been infected, um, we've had contact with other people. Um, so your phones can create a, um, a low energy signal using Bluetooth technology that you attach um, uh, your earphones with, um, but those, those create a signal to other phones that can tell you whether you may have been in contact with other people. And depending on what the, the implementation regime is for those types of contact tracing applications, um, there's a lot of information that's being generated that could be centralized or could be held in a decentralized mode and could raise concerns about the ability to track people's movement, to understand their interactions with other people. Um, and from the, the perspective of, of privacy 
uh, or civil liberties advocates, that's the worrisome prospect, especially if you're not entirely convinced of the utility or efficacy of that type of application. So when it comes to contact tracing, for instance, this is something that we've always done from a public safety perspective, for instance, in E. coli outbreaks or other food safety outbreaks. But I guess in that case, it's done more, has been done in more of an analog way, but with digital technology, it takes it to a whole different level, doesn't it? It does. It does. And there's, a, there's the, the seeming promise here of, you know, suddenly you have this technology that seems to um, reflect or, or synthesize the activity of the human analog. Um, because the, the basic idea with um, traditional contact tracing is, let's say you've contracted disease like salmonella or E. coli through a bad food that you've eaten, you want to be able to trace whether you've you've had contact or your food supply chain has had contact with other people. Um, and the the contact tracing process involves people asking questions of who you've who you've seen, where you've been, the types of stores you've been shopping at. And there's there's well-established precedents for applying that 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 type of regime. Um, and it relies on subject matter experts who can ask qualified questions and um, help determine what of the information that you're providing is signal and what's noise. Now, the the appeal of the, the digital contact tracing concept is that, well, you can you can do that same thing that humans have done, um, but you can maybe do it at scale. Um, but there there are also uh, drawbacks in in that, and there are the, the temptation may also be tempered by other considerations. Um, so the, the drawbacks are contact tracing, generally speaking, doesn't work um, uh, for a disease unless you can actually um, broadly be able to identify who's contracted the, the illness and who hasn't. So it requires um, large-scale testing. Um, but it also is only a useful paradigm to apply in a situation where the cases of, um, of contracted illness are reduced to a certain threshold. Um, so you know, we're currently in a phase in the U.S. with COVID where uh, COVID is being transmitted through community transmission, which means it's a sort of a lar much larger scale, um, to the extent that it doesn't make sense to try and trace individual points of contact because it's being spread across communities. But as those numbers start to drop, and assuming we get to a point where there's more general um, testing that's available, then you can start to think about, well, what if we used our phones to help augment the ability to trace who we've had contact with? Uh, and that is an appealing prospect because, for example, we don't always remember who we've talked to um, or who we've interacted with in the course of the day. Um, but there's also downsides that, uh, that accrue to that type of application. What are some of those downsides? Yeah, so the, the, some of the challenges there are, if you're talking about using your, your, your cell phone um, and the Bluetooth signal that's, uh, that's broadcast by your cell phone, um, if you if you're walking through a parking lot and you happen to walk past a car um, with the door closed and the window closed and you are wearing a mask and the other person is wearing a mask, that may trigger a signal of contact with the other person when in fact there's virtually no prospect of, of having um, shared the same air uh, and possibly um, transmitted uh, COVID. Um, so there are all sorts of cases like that where you can imagine the, the risk of a false positive emerging. And that's one of the virtues of traditional contact tracing because you can provide that context. Uh, and this is kind of goes back to the, one of the broader themes of, of, 
a point of realization that I've had throughout my career, throughout the, the things that I've thought about as someone who's both, both focused on an interest in the hard sciences and technology and engineering, but also the broader implications of that te technology is um, having the tools to be able to put technology in the right context where you understand the limits and constraints and don't treat the technology as the pure solution. So the implication here is that as you start to identify there's false positive risks, there's risk of misuse or misaligned incentives for things like digital contact tracing, you need to be able to create the supporting organizational structures to be able to roll out those systems in an effective way that acknowledge the limitations and, and do so in a way um, that can get to, uh, to better outcomes. Um, but there are also other concerns that are raised in contact tracing. So for example, we're talking about contact tracing applications that rely on mobile phones um, and specific applications on mobile phones. But not everyone carries a mobile phone. Or not everyone has a mobile phone or is technologically savvy in the use of their, their mobile phones. So then you raise all sorts of issues about the quote unquote digital divide. Um, does this mean that the people who maybe are most advantaged and most privileged because they have access to technology are going to get a disproportionate um, uh, advantage in the use of that technology, meaning that some of the most vulnerable communities um, that are less technology savvy um, are not receiving the, the public health benefits of something like contact tracing. And those are real concerns, particularly when you have kind of disproportionate um, spread of a disease and disproportionate uh, accessibility and availability um, of, of public health resources. So there's real kind of broader cultural, cultural and sociological um, and environmental uh, concerns that come into play when you're talking about applying this type of technology to the real world. And you can kind of see some of those parallels in artificial intelligence and facial recognition technologies, for instance, where there have been studies that show, you know, this uh, inability to recognize faces of people from minority communities uh, and things like that. So it just seems like not just in uh, the ability of the underprivileged to have access to some of this, but also in having data collected that would benefit them in terms of treatments. You kind of see that in clinical trials, which are disproportionately, uh, you know, again, focused on privileged communities that can have access to it. So it just seems like there are a lot of parallels here. Yeah, but the reality is bias is everywhere in the world. And if you don't take the time to understand the nature of that bias, um, and you're using technology like artificial intelligence, like machine learning, um, and so forth as blunt tools for addressing um, problems or, or cool, fascinating tools for addressing problems um, without understanding the limitations and drawbacks of those tools and technologies, you end up with incomplete solutions or, or solutions that are worse than the, problem, the underlying problems themselves um, because those solutions further instantiate and even further reify um, the, the bias that's already existing in, in the, uh, the analog world. And in terms of mobility and contact tracing and testing, et cetera, where does the individual's rights versus you know, societal good come in? How do you balance that need? And, and where are we in that, in that process here as we start to talk about and implement maybe some of these things? It's not an easy question to, to answer universally, in part because different societies have different cultural norms and expectations. There, 
for example, more communitarian societies um, uh, that tend to value the interests of the community above the, the individual demands or individual rights. And so we see different regimes playing out um, in Southeast Asia, where there seems to be a higher acceptance or willingness for the government to impose certain solutions. Um, but in Western societies in the US and in uh, many parts of, of Europe, uh, we tend to see more of a focus on individual rights and the, uh, the importance of creating um, consent or opt-in regimes for applying these types of technologies. So what that means in practice is that if, for example, we decide that it's appropriate to use digital contact tracing and effective to use di digital contact tracing, um, the way that that's used is people get to choose whether they're going, going to download an application onto their phone and whether that, that application is gonna be turned on all the time. Um, they might also choose whether they're uploading information about their health status, um, if they've had a recent test for COVID that has come up positive, whether they're uploading that information to a centralized authority, a public health institution that can then make further determinations. So a lot of the focus right now is, is around this, um, this idea of, of end user um, or citizen consent. Um, but that's also predicated on the ability of public health institutions to effectively convey why it's important for people to use these applications, what the benefits are, um, and convince them that, that they should opt into to those types of, of applications. Um, because the reality is, um, if you don't have broad adoption of a tool like, contact, like digital contact tracing, um, and by some estimates, that means more than 60% or even higher of a population um, uh, not just adopting the, the contact tracing applications, but actively and consistently using them. If you don't have that, that high threshold of use, um, the technology is going to be ineffective because you're just not getting significant signal across the full population of who's coming into contact with whom. Um, so there are, there are real challenges um, and trade-offs that need to be determined if you're going to choose a consent-oriented regime over a mandatory regime you have to have compelling reasons to get people to adopt that practice. Um, otherwise, it's not going to work. So, Courtney, how much of this is in the realm of the theoretical and how much of it is actually being implemented in the U.S. and then around the world? Uh, so, in, with respect to contact tracing, there, there are lots of examples that we can point to already where different governments um, have started to implement these programs. Um, the, there's versions of this in China, there's, there's versions of it in, uh, in South Korea, um, in Israel, uh, in, and a number of other jurisdictions. And I think in many, many environments, um, governments, and even in private sector, uh, there's a lot of active efforts to explore the appropriate applications. And in, uh, in civil society, um, in technology communities, in academic circles, there's been a lot of work to scope out different forms of of these types of technologies. So for example, many of us have read about Apple and Google um, working on this, this joint protocol um, that would be the, the layer on the operating system that's underneath applications for contact tracing, but creates kind of a common standard for um, what they call decentralized approach to contact tracing, where the, the critical information of who you come into contact with is de-identified and preserved on your local device. Um, and there's limited information that's shared in a centralized place. 
So there's a lot of active research and development and work that's going into this in different locations, including the US. Um, so that's one example. For, for some of the other technologies that I talked about, um, like the, the immunity passport concept, um, that's being considered and deployed in, uh, in some places, like China's example, um, to varying degrees of success and raising a lot of concerns in the community around how, both how effective it is um, and whether it's an appropriate thing to do um, from, from a, a privacy and individual rights perspective. Um, mobility tracking, I would say, is probably one of the more broadly used tools. Um, and uh, one of the reasons that maybe it's more broadly adopted is because there are reasonable ways of addressing the privacy interests that accrue for that type of technology. Um, because in order for that mobility tracking data to be useful, it really is only a question of understanding the aggregate movements. So if you can take data from individual devices and come up with reasonably strong assurances that that data is being aggregated in ways that de-identify it and make it uh, at a reduced risk of being re-identified. Um, uh, and by that, I mean um, reducing the risk of taking that, that aggregate level data and identifying an individual phone or an individual person from the information. If you can do that effectively, then you may be getting a really strong signal for public health officials about whether um, stay-at-home orders or shelter-in-place orders um, or other public health messages are being disseminated and are being uh, taken seriously by the population. So from the perspective of, of understanding how effective you're being with uh, the public health initiatives, that's a tool that I think is in much broader use than some of the other technologies that I talked about. Uh, you know, governments can say to their people that we're doing all of this because, uh, you know, of the public good and we're gathering all of these uh, massive amounts of data. But given politics and all of the competing interests and potentially, you know, uh, competing agendas and given how much even this pandemic has become politicized even in the U.S., given the proximity of the presidential race, how do you actually protect people given that we're not just setting a precedent for this pandemic, but for future ones or any kind of crisis? Uh, but, you know, you're collecting, not you, but governments are collecting and analyzing data and potentially holding on to data that could be used for other purposes. Is that something that we should worry about? Absolutely. Um, and, and I think this is one area where we have strong precedents for, for how to address this class of concerns. We have, for example, um, principle-based systems like the fair information principles that give us a good sense in general terms of how we should be addressing these concerns. So the fair information principles goes back to um, the, the late 70s, um, and these are principles that are well enshrined in data protection law and regulation around the world, not just in, in the US. But they speak to things like um, uh, necessity, um, proportionality, and transparency. So necessity is the idea of starting with just the data that you need. Um, and one of the ways that you might look at that is if you're trying to build out a response, a technology-oriented response to COVID, um, what are the specific problems or challenges that you're dealing with? Starting there and then using those problems or challenges to define the data landscape that you need in order to address them. Um, you can think of that approach in opposition to the idea of, well, let's go out and grab all data that may be available in uh, an environment in which 
all of the applications and technology and um, gadgets that we have are generating a huge exhaust of data. Um, uh, the temptation is to pull all that data together into a massive data warehouse and start to mine it for insights. Um, if instead you focus on the things that matter, the data sources that matter for a specific problem or question, then you're, you're thinking about the necessity component. Um, and you're also thinking about proportionality in terms of the minimum amount of data that's needed to solve the problem. Um, that helps minimize um, the risk of overexposure of data. It minimizes the temptation of repurposing data for applications that go beyond the initial justification. Um, but the other prong here, uh, one other principle that I think is important is just transparency, explaining what it is you're trying to do with data that's available, or if you need to um, acquire new sources of data, how and why you're going to acquire that data and what, what you're going to do with it. Um, because I think if, if you can explain to the general population um, what you're doing, why you're doing it, why it's important to addressing the public health demands of the moment, I think you generally get a much better uh, adoption and a much better sense of comfort. And it demystifies the technology, makes the applications more accessible. Um, but one of the other lessons that we've learned from historical precedent, uh, and particularly we can think of 9-11 as, as one example here, is that we are in, in an emergency situation right now. Um, and we want to be careful that that emergency situation is treated as such, which is to say that it's not held as the new norm for all time uh, going forward. So if we think about the current circumstances as a time-bound situation where the things that we do now in terms of, things, of applications like contact tracing only apply um, for the duration of the, the COVID um, public health crisis, uh, and there are natural points to re-examine or to, to, to tune down the systems, turn them off, and delete the data, then you can also get closer to building the public trust that this is a specific application for a specific point in time, but it's not defining the new normal for, for all time to come. In terms of your own personal life, Courtney, have you had uh, any of what I call viral insights about your life and work because of COVID, kind of that moment of clarity brought upon by a crisis? Yeah, I, I think every day um, is sort of a, a realization that the work that, that I'm doing, the, the history of experiences that I've had um, and that I've been quite fortunate to be able to have in terms of exploring all of these different um, academic pursuits and being able to, to merge them into a career that really attaches to meaningful challenges uh, of the day uh, and more generally. Um, it's informed the way that, that I look at the world. It's informed my view of the role of technology and both its importance, but also its limitations. Um, and so when, when I think about you know, basic choices that I make around the applications that I install on my phone, or even the choice to carry around my phone, um, or, or to use other gadgets that, that are a part of my life. Um, what am I choosing? What are the implications? Um, what does this mean in terms of the data that I'm generating about myself and the prospects of using that data? And as someone who is on kind of operating on the other side of the equation, working for a, a company that's building technology, what are my responsibilities to the communities that um, that are served by the customers that the that my company works for? Um, 
what are my obligations? How should I be thinking about those responsibilities? Um, and those are things that constantly weigh on me and inform basically every choice that I make in my personal life and in my professional life. Looking back at that young intern at Sandia National Labs telling his mentor that he really needed to, really, really needed to study philosophy, what would you say to that, that young man about the journey that you've been on and where you find yourself today as a philosophy-driven privacy and civil liberties expert in the middle of a pandemic? Yeah, I would say um, trust your intuitions. Um, I had a sense then that I couldn't articulate, um, uh, but I knew it was important. I knew that there was a, a pull towards understanding a, a broader set of issues um, and, and not just being fixated on the, this space of, of technology and engineering and, and hard sciences um, that it was important for me to explore the humanities. It was important for me to, to branch out and see the world through a number of different lenses. Um, but, but sticking to that intuition in a moment where people who are extraordinarily credible, who I had a great deal of respect for, who were telling me that um, there may not be a lot of professional applications for the things that I was thinking about in a kind of an abstract academic sense, um, I am really proud that I that I kind of stuck with that intuition, and I think it, it turned out to be one of the most important choices that I've made in my life. Courtney, thank you so much for joining me today and for these deep insights. Really enjoyed having you on the podcast. Chitra, thanks so much for having me. This is a lot of fun. Courtney Bowman is a former colleague and director of Privacy and Civil Liberties Engineering at Palantir Technologies. Bowman's work addresses complex issues at the intersection of policy, law, technology, ethics, and social norms. Bowman is deeply involved in the privacy and civil liberties implications of data collection and analysis of the COVID-19 pandemic, working with the U.S. government and governments around the world. Bowman and I serve on the hashtag NoCovid Coalition, a nonprofit, nonpartisan group with a mission to communicate to all Americans where they live through people they trust and in words that speak to them the most current health, economic, and social facts and techniques to defeat the virus. This is When It Mattered. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Thanks for listening to When It Mattered. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. When It Mattered is a weekly leadership podcast produced by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with strategy, brand positioning, and narrative. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions. Our theme song is composed by Jack Yeagerlein. Join us next week for another edition of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.